If you do any prospecting with LinkedIn, you have got to go get set up with Surf. That's S-U-R-F-E. It's a tool you can use to add new contacts to your CRM system directly from LinkedIn in seconds. I'm using it every single day. I add contacts, follow my deals, keep track of notes, and it ends up saving me a bunch of time on prospecting and outreach, which means I can spend more time moving my deals along. The data is always 100% accurate since I don't have to copy and paste all the fields over from each and every contact that I want to put in my CRM. Instead, Surf does that all automatically with just one click in about 60 seconds. The team over at Surf has put together a very special offer for fans of sales players. There's a link down in the show notes and you can use the promo code JWSURF5. Don't forget the E at the end of Surf. That's JWSURF5 for 5% off your first year. Don't spend another minute doing things manually. Go get set up with Surf. I'm very excited to welcome today's guest, Jennifer Allen. Jennifer or Jen is a key account executive at Challenger and the co-host of Winning the Challenger Sale podcast. First of all, she's an amazingly talented seller, has a very interesting background and story that she gets into in the, in the show. But she's also got a lot of great insights into the books, The Challenger Sale and The Challenger Customer. If you haven't read those previously, those are pretty much staples in this industry. And to be honest, it had been several years since I'd picked up The Challenger Sale, and it was great to have a conversation with Jen about some of the different topics that are covered in the book, which include the different sales personalities or sales profiles, what it means to be a challenger seller, and how to fight against the objection of the status quo, which is very common in B2B sales. So with that, Jen, welcome to the SaaS Sales Players. Hey, Jen, welcome. Thank you so much, Jesse. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. We finally got this. We had to push this back a couple of times. So I'm thrilled that, that we're you know, finally getting on the air and having a great conversation. Me too. So tell me first, how did you get into sales? And then we can kind of take it uh, chronologically or something like that and get to what you're doing today and, and what you do now. So tell us your origin story. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure my origin story isn't that different from most of your guests in that it's not like I grew up as a little girl, just waiting until the day I could carry a bag and a quota. Um, right. I, uh, I joined a company called CEB, which was corporate executive board back in 04, primarily because my roommate from college worked there. And she said, look, it's a really smart culture. It's fun. I, I'm still not exactly sure what we're doing here, but you would love it here. You should come. So it was one of those things where I had no idea what I really wanted to do. Um, and I got lucky to work at the time. It was kind of like an SDR role, but just for existing clients to secure renewals and get them utilizing the service. Um, I worked for a woman who was just phenomenal at sales, mm -hmm. like absolutely phenomenal. And so when I started watching her and observing what she did, um, she was really the driving force behind what made me want to pursue a, a, a career in sales. What kind of stuff did she do that was phenomenal? I'm just curious. Yeah. So at CV, like we sold without going into a ton of detail, we sold these annual subscriptions where we'd sell to a CMO and say, Hey, we've sold, um, we've talked to all these other CMOs. Here seems to be a set of shared challenges. We're going to go study what the best companies are doing and then teach you how to adopt those best practices. So the focal mm -hmm. audience and the buyer for that was the CMO at, at large enterprises. And I remember one of the very first calls I shadowed of her 
she was talking to a company, I mean, think like Coca-Cola and Walmart and these big, big organizations. And she was going in head to head with these folks and having such a smart conversation and not just doing what I thought most salespeople did, which is just be really nice and likable, but asking them these really hard questions where you could tell, even as someone who didn't know what the heck we were doing, like you could tell she was asking questions that they actually didn't know the answer to. And she was so confident and she was so um, like, she would not let them off the hook with it. And I just remember thinking like at the time, those people felt like celebrities to me, you know, I was just like in awe of how could you have such a head to head conversation with someone like that? That's what really stands out when I think about her. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed about some of my colleagues that I would say are top performers in sales or software sales is they had a really great first manager. Uh, and you know, while I think I have a long way to go to, to being a top performer, I can say that my, uh, my first manager was a huge influence on my career. If you, if you land in a spot in sales where that first leader is really more like a coach or a teacher and is, you know, vulnerable and open to sharing their playbook, of course, and they have that sort of personality, it really goes a long way and, and makes a huge difference. That's really cool to hear some of the things she did to, to influence the rest of your career. Yeah, I agree. Like, it's so fascinating to me when you start, and a lot of podcasts, right? Like you start with an origin story and you hear how many people have had a manager that has really had that kind of impact. I'd be willing to bet that there are just as many people who had a terrible first sales manager and said, yes, this is not their career. Like sales is the wrong career for me when in fact it may have just been the manager. Such a missed opportunity. It really is. And I could, it, it is like, it comes down to kind of luck, right place, right time right. and the right personality to work with you to, to get over the hump of, of that lear- first learning curve. Cause I know I, I had no idea what I was doing when I got started and I had, you know, similar, very, very great first manager who just had, it was mostly patient. He was right. patient enough to <laughs> help me over that hump. And once I was over it, I was like, Oh, I could do this for a living forever, you know, but had I had someone else, I might've said, you know what, I'm going to go back to something else or, or change career or never try again. So that's, that's incredible. So you stayed at CEB for quite a while. And it I looks did. Like yeah. yeah. It looks like you had a bunch of different roles there and, and worked your way into doing like senior level business development. Tell us about sort of the, the career progress, what things set you apart from your peers and how did you continue advancing for, you know, for so long at, at the same company? Yeah, great question. I um, When I started working under uh, this woman, about six months after that, she had an opportunity to go over to our London office and lead a sales team over there, which she took. And I still think to this day, one of the things that really helped me the most in my career was when she left, they didn't have a backfill. And I remember our managing director said, you are too new to do this job, but we don't mm-hmm. have anybody else to do it. So you can do it. We're just not going to pay you for it. And it's only Ugh. until we can <laughs> Like have someone come in who can do it. And honestly, now at the time, like I know there's all sorts of like conflicting advice and perspectives around like, do you do a job you don't get paid for? But I look back on that as one of the the most instrumental like times of my career, because what it taught me to do is like, I needed to prove to myself. I also wanted to prove to her that I was capable of doing this job. And it put me in a situation where like, I felt like I couldn't fail. Right. So mm-hmm. I had to go do the things that made me feel uncomfortable that I remembered my manager doing really well. And I had to figure it out. And so I did that probably for a good six, nine months. And then finally, that manager director said, 
okay, you actually can do this job. So we're going awesome. to, and it was, it was really, really rewarding. Like I, I look back very fondly on that experience, even though it was a lot of late nights and feeling frustrated with myself, but that set me off in a career in account management. And so I did that for about eight years. So I played a different a number of different roles where I was like player coach or managing big yeah. territories, doing all sorts of stuff. But then it started getting this like feeling. I remember I was actually on site with a client that was in Chicago. And I remember sitting in this meeting thinking, I don't know how much longer I want to keep doing account management. Like, mm-hmm. it's not that there isn't joy that I derive from that and helping customers businesses. But I just remember thinking like, there's something about the thrill of winning the client, taking someone who doesn't believe they need to work with your company and then changing their mindset that was mm-hmm. attractive to me, but also freaked me out. Like, would I leave this thing I was super comfortable doing and felt like I was good at to go into this like unknown land where everybody I saw in that space felt and looked different to how I sold. And so mm. that really was like one of these moments where I was like, I'm either going to go nuts being an account manager, or I'm going to like fear this thing that I don't actually know. And so that following year I took, I picked up like a true bag where I was starting the year at zero and, and had to sell a bunch of folks into the CEB business model um, and loved it and haven't looked back. Wow. Now it looks like they're part of Gartner, Gartner now, excuse me. Were you there when they got acquired? Yeah. So that was really interesting because CEB was what I would consider like a mid-sized company. Gartner acquired them and we became part of a, like a large enterprise organization and then when I moved into the Challenger Group, which was a used to be a different division of CEB, um, Gartner sold us off to private equity. And so then we became this really oh, weird gosh. dynamic where it's like you're a well-established brand. A lot of people know the name Challenger, but you're operating in a startup environment, which I had never been in, where there's like no HR, no marketing, no systems. And it made yep. me realize how fortunate I had been, like the things that I took for granted, just having started working at mid and, and large size. That's cool that you got to see sort of the juxtaposition of big brand company resources all the way over to scrappy, you know, no formal process, no HR, no, not necessarily no brand, but just minimal resources. Wow. Yeah. And it was interesting because we had like in the challenger side of the house, a lot of our clients came from referrals on the CEB side. So then separating from that really showed us how much of a gap that we had in outbound that we had to actually be much more rigorous about applying challenger in our own business because we didn't have like the mother source just feeding us all of these really warm prospects. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, so, so the, uh, then you made the transition and walk me through the transition over to challenger and maybe give us a little background on what challenger is for anybody out there. Who's not familiar with the book, the challenger sale, uh, or, you know, the organization that's paired with that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So when I was in, when I was in the sales role at CEB, I was selling what was called at the time, like our sales leadership council. And that was where we wrote the research that, um, that was behind the challenger sale book. So essentially at the time it was like, oh, eight, oh, nine, anyone who was selling at that time remembers that probably not so fondly when the economy was kind of falling apart. And when we went out that year to sales leaders and we said, all right, like, what's the number one problem you have this year that you want us to study? It was almost unanimous that people came back and said, look, some of the people that used to be my very best sellers are nowhere near their target right now. But I've got a really small set of people then on the sales team who figured out something about how to engage customers in this environment that we haven't. So can you help us isolate what that something is so we can go teach the rest of our sales force who's really struggling with it? how to adopt a similar mindset. 
So when we rolled that research out, essentially what we did at the time without going into too much detail is we had what is now about 60,000 sellers that were assessed by their managers just on everything you might think matters to sales. So things like how good of a negotiator are you? Like how good is your product knowledge? How good is your industry knowledge? Like everything. There was like 115 or so different things. And what came back was that while there are um, a lot of things that an organization could train on, there's a very small set of skills that were just very consistent with high performing sellers. Hmm. And so all Challenger was, was just putting a name to that, right? And I think a lot of people get, when, when Challenger came out, I remember this fondly, there were a lot of people who were just pissed, right? Like you're saying the relationship builder doesn't work and relationships are always going to be essential part. Like I can't even, to this day still, there are so many <laughs> angry people about Challenger. And then there's that set of people who say like, I've been doing this my whole life. It's nothing new. And they're right, right? Like it's not yeah. like this business went out and said, you know, we're 10 smart people who said, we know better than you do about how to be successful, all we did is just say, let's study people who are already successful and figure out what they did, right? And then we just share that. It's not like yeah. we came up with Challenger. So I mentioned to you just before we got on the air here that I haven't unfortunately read Challenger for cover to cover for a couple of years. I've had, you know, recaps of it through by way of managers and colleagues that have, have read the book and read it consistently. Remind me again, uh, there's, there's are five different selling personas. And one of those is the challenger. I know one of them's lone wolf. Uh, there's the relationship. I'm trying is there like an, an analytics persona? <laughs> yeah. this so is pretty decent for not reading the book in so long, Jesse. Uh, yeah. Even though I haven't read it again, I've had <laughs> tons of managers that, that were big advocates of the, the methodology and so, but, but yeah, I also have like a really nerdy photographic memory. So there's that too. <laughs> Gosh, I wish I had that. That's probably one of the best things you can have in sales. Um, so yeah, you're exactly right. So basically what it showed us is there's five different dominant mindsets. So the first thing I'll say is these are not mutually exclusive. So you're right. Like one's a relationship builder or one's a hard worker. I'll, I'll walk through the others, but it's not like as a seller, I can either build relationships or I can work hard. The way to right. think about it is when I'm backed into a tough customer conversation, I'm, I'm always going to default to a certain mindset that dictates what I say and what I do with that customer. And mm -hmm. so what we found is there's five different flavors. And I always tell people, like, if you run a sales team, think about the people that work on it. If you're on a sales team, think about the people that surround you. Because I guarantee you can start to slap people into these mindsets. So you've got your relationship builder, which is frankly how I grew up learning how to sell. It's like you Same. win, right? Like you win business yeah. by being likable, accessible. That customer knows you'll do anything for them. You know the names of their kids. You take them out to play golf, get free lunch, like all of that stuff. Like customer buys for me because they believe they like working with me better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Second is the hard worker. Your hard workers are like that, um, that mindset where everything is a number, right? Like I'm the first in, I'm the last out. I will pound the phones. I will pound emails out because I believe the more I do, the more likely I am to hit my goal. Right, then you've right. got your problem solvers. Now, problem solvers are super common in like highly engineered industries because what often happens is they get into sales because they like solving problems for the customer. But what they feel less confident about is actually going out there and hunting and building the business. And so they love mm -hmm. to be the hero for the customer, like customer buys something, something goes wrong. They drop all their like hunting activities so that they can go be hero for the customer 
which may be good for the customer, but it's terrible for the organization that has established a quota for them. Interesting. Okay. That what, what's that one called again? That's the problem solver. Problem solver. Okay. I'm, I'm probably not that, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, the, now that you bring it up, I, I definitely have worked with some problem solvers. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're everywhere. And then you've got your lone wolves, which are usually everyone's favorite. Your lone wolves are just out there doing them. We have no idea what they're doing. They don't show up to training. They don't submit their expense reports on time. Like when they're doing well, we just let them be when there's a performance problem, they're easier to manage out because they just don't follow any of the rules and they're not team players. And then lastly, you've got your challengers. So your challengers are your debaters of the world. So if we think mm-hmm. about challengers and how they behave internally, like you've probably either been this person or you've seen this person where like the company will be about to roll out a new product. They pull the sales team together and they show it. They're super excited. And then a seller raises their hand and they say, have you thought about this? And mm. the room gets awkward and quiet. And the sales leader gets frustrated because they've just identified something that sales leader missed, right? And as much as that is painful inside of an organization, organizations love these people because they call out the bad stuff before the customer does. But it is not comfortable in the moment. And that's exactly how challengers show up to the customer conversation. They have just this like intellectual curiosity about how that customer's business works, how they make money, lose money, like incur risk. And they bring that into every call because their mindset isn't, I need to sell this person something. Their mindset Mm -hmm. is, if there is an avoidable problem here, it is my duty to this customer to help them avoid it. Right. Wow. Okay. So, so I can see now why that persona, if you would, do you call them personas or is it personality or I refer to it as a mindset, like personality feels like like traits and things that can't be changed. This is a mindset that can absolutely mindset. I like that because I think when I first read the book, I was also sort of put off by the, well, hold on now. I'm a relationship seller and you're bucketing me into this bucket that is fair or unfair. So, okay. Mindsets. I like that a lot better because I think, and to your earlier point, you can embody several of the different mindsets. I, I think I even have some lone wolf in me uh, from time to time. I mean, I, I don't purposely not follow process, but I do sometimes like to just go and operate on my own. I don't necessarily feel like I need to. Uh, yeah. So I, I get that. Okay. So, so I can see where the challenger is the most, uh, sort of effective mindset, because if you can come into a customer conversation already prepared for, you know, overcoming objections, responding to questions and seeing things from that perspective. Cause, cause yeah, it is, it's a perspective Um, because if you're asking those questions before that even goes to market or before that's even put in front of the prospect, then you're already being more strategic in that sense that you're going and and you're thinking about how the customer is going to perceive the offer or the product uh, or the proposal. So that's super interesting. Yeah. And I will say it's a little bit like, I love this analogy. Like so often we hear companies talk about, we need to be customer focused. And the way mm-hmm. that we have taught sellers to interpret that is customers always right. Do anything that makes the customer happy. But when you think about it, it's a little bit like if, if I was talking to you, Jesse, and I had spinach in my teeth, right? Like it would make me more comfortable in the moment if you didn't tell me I had it, but then I would look back and think how embarrassing, right? It's the same thing with like a, with a sales environment. It is going to feel uncomfortable to the customer when you point out something that is costing them risk, money, time, whatever the right measure may be. 
and it will not feel comfortable and happy. But we as humans, if we are ever going to change, we don't change in many ways because something is better. We change because we perceive that what we are currently doing is actually super, super painful. And that's what drives human behavior to change. But so rarely do many of us sellers grow up being taught that. Like I, I will say, like I was taught to have a relationship builder mindset. And even though I've been selling this thing for over 10 years, I mm-hmm. still have to remind myself, like, don't go for that safe, happy place. You got to ask the hard question and you have to practice. It's not like this is just easy because I read a book on challenger. And then all of a sudden, like my mindset completely shifts. It is intentional practice and it's doing something that feels different to what we are wired to do. What kind of things can you do? So, so let's say somebody out there listening has read the book or maybe they read it every year. It's their, you know, one of their go-to sales books to revisit. What are some things that you can do to put it into consistent practice so that it does stay, you know, again, so it's not just, I read it, I get it. It's, I read it and I took some actionable step that made me, uh, you know, embrace a more challenger mindset. Great question. So we, um, there's a few things that take it from being like a mindset to actually execution. So one is if you lay out and every company will have a bit of a different sales process, right? But they all kind of look and feel the same, not to hurt any special unicorns feelings out here, but essentially like if you think about every job you have, right? First is who do I call on? Then what do I say to catch their attention? Then once I've caught their attention, how do I manage all the other dynamics of getting them to buy? Then how do I close and negotiate the thing? And then once I've closed it, how do I get them to spend more with us, right? Like let's Mm -hmm. oversimplify it and just refer to it as that. The best advice I have for people is challengers have a different mindset for how they do each of those jobs. So even when we first like started training on challenger, we made a huge mistake in just going out and teaching, like, here's how you do teach, tailor, take control, constructive tension, which are the skills that popped in the survey, right? But like, I walk out of that room and I'm like, okay, I get it theoretically, but now I have to write an email. What the heck would a challenger say? Like, I don't know. So I'm just going to default to my old behavior. And that's the like, the learn do gap that I think we actually didn't do a great job of solving for early on. Mm -hmm. Now I would say like one of the things, and this is public, like anyone can access this stuff. Like we've actually taken each of those jobs in a sales process and said, how does a talent like a challenger even pick what account they spoke, they spend time on. It's very different than how a relationship builder picks it. How does a challenger like write an email with to a person they've never had a conversation with before? Guarantee it's really different than how a relationship builder looks at it. So whether it's like you going through that mindset, you being the listener saying, how do I interpret how would a challenger do it? Or using some of the free resources that we've just got on our site. The important thing is you have to look at the very specific jobs you're doing and not let it be this like super theoretical thing that we're like, yeah, I kind of do it. I kind of don't. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. So here's one that I've heard a lot. And I, I mentioned this to you off air too. I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't like the challenger methodology because it sort of, uh, like, or the challenger mindset anyway, because it might make you feel like you're a know-it-all. And that's a problem with sales. Uh, sales culture is reps come in and they're know-it-alls and the prospects get irritated or irked because someone tries to act like they know more about their business or their tech stack or whatever it is. How, how should one think about the challenger in a different way? Or what would you say to someone who says, I don't like the challenger methodology. It's too aggressive. You have to put people on the spot. It's, you know, know-it-all stuff. It encourages all that. How do you respond to that? 
yeah, um, I'd be lying if I said I didn't hear that all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, there's a whole notion out there that that's the way it is. And I, I know that's not the case, but I am really curious, uh, you know, how you guys respond to that. Yeah, so I'll speak from my personal experience. Like when I first learned Challenger, I interpreted it as you have to go in and t- tell that customer all the things they're doing wrong and show how you've identified the right answer to their problem. That was how I, how I, I interpreted Challenger. And so what mm-hmm. I did is I would schedule calls with heads of sales and I would go in, I would ask no questions. My, my only question might be like, are you familiar with Challenger? And then when they said no, I would dive right into the whole Challenger story. And in my mind, I was teaching them, right? So I was like, check the box, I'm doing Challenger. What I failed to appreciate at the time and what, I, what took me a lot of hard lessons to learn is one, especially when you're selling into large enterprise, no problem is easy, right? Like, I don't care who you are and what you sell. There is no way that you can just come in and make this really complicated problem super easy in one call. And my call, like my customer conversations I were having were implying that I thought that I could. Mm. And so the way it came off was I, instead of sounding super smart, I actually sounded so incredibly naive, right? Like, right exactly the opposite of what I was trying to do. And so what I would say is, and this is something I would say to anyone who views Challenger as this, one, that is absolutely a misinterpretation of Challenger, but it's an understandable one. I completely Mm -hmm. understand because I went through it too, why people would make that assumption about it. But what we've come to learn and realize is like discovery, you cannot challenge someone's current state if you don't understand their current state, right? Like, so discovery takes on a different flavor in a challenger environment. You're looking to discover what they think they need to do and how they think they need to do it, but you still have to do it, right? We cannot come in and present like we've got the answer to all of their problems because again, it is exceptionally mm-hmm. naive and we, and we just frankly don't. And so that's what I would say to anyone who perceives it that way is like, and we've done an episode on this on our challenger podcast, like discovery, the challenger way is essential for being able to teach absent of it. You do sound like a know-it-all. Right. Okay, cool. No. Yeah. That's, that was, that's the big thing I always hear, but from that perspective, it, it makes a lot more sense that that's, that's not the intention and it's not the, the focus. So something really interesting, I'm, I'm actually, I'm reading your bio on LinkedIn <laughs> and one of the biggest challenges that I've encountered, especially over say the last 24 ish months and, you know, going through a global pandemic and a lot of uncertainty is fighting against or, or competing against not fighting. That sounds too aggressive competing <laughs> against the status quo. And it sounds like, uh, you know, there's some, some tools in the, the challenger kit that help you know, respond or kind of, I'm going back to the word fight, battle against the status quo, which is one of the hardest things when you're selling a deal is not necessarily the, the competing, the competing company or, uh, you know, some other technology or, or other provider vendor it's, Hey, we're just not going to do anything right now, or we're happy with things as they currently are. And the, you know, the pain that exists with just maintaining the status quo is not great enough to make a switch. Uh, so tell me about that. Your, your bio is heavily towards that problem which is a problem that resonates with, I think, most everyone who's selling, especially if you're selling a technical or an enterprise level solution. Um, what are some things that you can extract from the challenger methodology or the challenger mindset to help uh, fight against the status quo? 
Yeah, I love this one. And I, I think it really speaks to me because I face this a lot too, right? Like when I'm trying to go in and get a company to rewire the mindsets of their entire sales organizations, very few people are just like out there shopping for that, right? So it's like, I have to go in and find a way to convince them to change, let alone change to us. And so just for anyone who hasn't seen this, you know, when we studied this, we found that in a complex B2B sale, um, about 40% of all losses are actually because of exactly what Jesse said. It's not that they didn't buy from you and they bought from your competitors. They just have decided to do nothing at all. And I think when we reflect yeah. on the type of environment that we are in today, right? How much change has been thrust upon all of us, regardless of what we sell and what we're selling and who we are and what jobs we have, like everybody's job, you can argue in some way has become more difficult or at least different than it was. And so when you reflect on buying anything in the B2B space, buying something means you are voluntarily asking to change something. Mm -hmm. Now, when you think about how we as humans behave, when everything around us is different and change, we start to look for ways to preserve same because same feels safe. Same doesn't get me fired, right? Yeah. What does get me fired is I go to my CFO, I ask for all this money, I buy this thing, it doesn't work out the way it was promised. And then I have to explain why I wasted all that money. Like that mm -hmm. I think is in the back of every buyer's mind. And what we as sellers really have to appreciate, and this is, again, goes in the face of what I was taught when I was first learning how to sell, is that customers rarely buy because they love this vision of how much better life will be. Mm. Where customers buy is when we as sellers show them the pain that you are scared of is actually far less than the pain that you're incurring today. So someone, a client of ours came up with this line, like the pain of same has to be significantly greater than the pain of change you're asking that person to make. Mm. And I think when I reflect on my own deals where I've lost, it is almost always because I have not made the pain of what they're currently doing today greater than the pain of buying and implementing our solution. And I don't care what you sell, right? Like there is some degree to which that is happening. And, and these are also deals where the buyer actually initiated it, right? It's not like, Hey, yeah. I called on this company and they didn't want it. It's like, I intended with all of my being to go buy something <laughs> to solve this problem. And then once I got, I got smarter about it, I was like, Whoa, 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 this is so much work. I don't want right. to do it. Right. And I empathize with buyers. Like I get why they opt out. It's scary. Mm -hmm. It's risky. And, and we're out here trying to show them how many more roses are at the other side of the fence, right? Like we got to gear the conversation on like, why would that person be compelled to change to begin with? And then, and only then do we start talking about the solution instead of leading with it. That's, that's awesome. Uh, and that is huge because it, it is really, and, and, and painting that picture where the pain of changing is less so than just the, the status quo is, is really something that you have to work at. And I'm sure that's what you guys tell clients and, and you know, students in the coaching programs is like, it just isn't going to come overnight. And I think it comes from being, uh, you know, somewhat knowledgeable, at least very knowledgeable of your industry and of your product and of what, you know, your, your buyer's day-to-day -day looks like. I think there's so many ways to look at that, but that is such a, an interesting skill. And it's cool that you call that out here right in your, your LinkedIn profile. 
Yeah. And I will say like, I know you had Bilal on um, a previous yes. episode and we just had him on too. And I just, I, I'm such a fan of him because I think he really embodies what it means to challenge status quo in every mm -hmm. aspect of selling. Right. And yeah. one of the things that he shared that I just loved was like, you think about how sellers get onboarded. We come in, we get our computer, we get our phone, we learn the names of like who we're working with. And then we just like drown people in our product. It's like sit through two weeks of product training. I come out the other side. I'm so smart about my product. I have no idea what is going on at customers. Like, why would a customer stay the same? Like, what else are they doing? So I'm in a vacuum just out there blasting noise about my product where customers are saying like, I don't even think you know me or you get me. And so I loved the way that he talked about it. It was like, rather than just throw people into the deep end on our product, let's help them understand the environment in which our customers are operating. Why do they stay the same? What are we up against outside of our competitor set? Like, how do they get the jobs done they need to get done? I just, I rarely see that happening when you look at onboarding program, mm -hmm. programs. So I can't, you can't really fault the sellers entirely who don't do this. Yeah. Bilal really changed my perspective on a lot of things and he's right. That's what's crazy is he's right. Yeah. And I love that he's like bucking against the, just the, the trend, the status quo, it's the status quo in the industry it, to your point is come in and spew feature function and product knowledge out there without really listening, without, without even following the basic rules of human psychology, because it's, I mean, everyone's inundated at this point. And if you can't stand out and if you aren't asking questions that get them thinking, and if you're not knowledgeable on their situation, their role, their business, then yeah, you're just going to lose hundred percent of the time. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to get the traction you need to get. So his, his framework and his ideas are just in my mind, really revolutionary. I was so happy to have him on the show because I yeah. learned, I learned a ton. I, so. and, and I think like when you look at, um, his model, like, uh, his mic drop model around, like, you have to get really, like, you don't really need to explain how many locations your, your company has and how long you've been in business. Oh, like man. that to me, I it's, it's the one thing I wish we could change about every seller is realizing customers don't care about you. They care about them. Right. And so by opening a conversation with like, this is how great we are. I think if anything actually puts further space in between the client and the seller, and even just like minor things like that, they don't require a lot of work to change, but they're hard, right? They're yeah. different ways of engaging, but they're so important to setting the tone for a conversation that a customer wants to have. I saw that recently and I won't name and shame, but I saw the intro slide on a deck that was like, here's where our headquarters are and here's how many employees we have and here's how many rounds of funding we ran. I was like, Oh man, are you kidding me? Uh, so yeah, that is, that, that needs to go away. <laughs> it does. And this is what I was, the other thing I think we messed up big time when we first started training on challenger is we were like, great, let's just train all the reps to come up with their own messages. What we failed mm -hmm. to realize is like, if a seller doesn't sell like this, it's going to be harder for them to try to come up with what to teach that doesn't lead with them. And so yeah. this is where we've really come to appreciate it has to be an organizational capability. Like if I'm a seller, you put me in challenger training and then you hand me Jesse, that deck that you just told me, what do we think that seller is going to do, right? They're going to go deliver the story about how big we are and how many customers we are and why our product's so great. So organizations really have to take accountability in my mind for helping reps have the type of conversations they want them to. We cannot supply our people with product led, like all about us focused collateral pitch decks and things like that, and then expect them to show up and talk about the customer. 
So I think it's a shared responsibility between the organization and the seller to make it easier for the seller to start sort of behaving differently. I wholeheartedly agree. And more resources, more training around who the ideal customer persona is and what they do and what they care about. And then like empathy training too, you know, I know early in my career, I made the mistake of, I would get so worked up when someone wouldn't respond to my email. Uh, (laughs) I was like, Hey, I I took the time to follow up with all these great resources and I, I, nothing as if somebody owed me some sort of response when, you know, I I had to bring it back down to planet earth and realize like, Hey, I'm not the center of the world here. These people have families and, and responsibilities and all kinds of stuff going on in their world that I'm, I need to be more considerate of. One of my great managers that I had said, empathy is the most important skill in B2B selling. If you can be empathetic uh, and you know, that, that will come out, you know, in addition to, I think some of the challenger mindset, also being empathetic and understanding that, you know, it's not all about you and your widget or your tool or your solution, whatever it is, it's understanding how to solve problems and really understanding who you're, you're selling to. So that's, yeah. Um, this is great stuff. I want to ask if I can ask, please make one comment because I'm so glad you brought up the word empathy. Cause I don't think most people would put empathy and challenger in the same sentence. I think if anything, people view challengers as like completely unempathetic. Yeah, um, yeah. What's really fascinating to me is what you just said, I think is such an important thing for all sellers to hear, which is like, if, if you're doing challenger and you're selling in that way, you are telling the customer that something they're doing is wrong, but you are not saying in a way that you customer are stupid because you do this empathy. Mm-hmm. I've come to learn in challenger is like a deal, a deal breaker, a deal maker. What we are targeting is the source of information that led them to do the thing they do today and show how that information has somehow changed right? So it's the, the information that led them to make this assumption is the enemy here. It's not the customer. And I think if we don't do that with empathy, we absolutely run the risk of that customer throwing up their defenses and getting very uncomfortable with this person is attacking me. And so I just, I love the way you spoke about empathy. I think it's, it's a, frankly, it's essential if you're going to try to use this type of model. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, yeah. I, I hadn't really thought about how those two, you know, challenger mindset and empathy can work together. So question for you, we've got just a few minutes left. I know uh, we've got some hard stops coming up here. Uh, I've got a couple more questions, but what I want to do just for the next few minutes is I'm really curious if you were a, a newer rep today, maybe you're a year to five years into your selling career, and this is your first time hearing about the challenger sale, the book, the program, the methodology, what are some action steps that you would take today? If you were starting over again, um, knowing what you know now, how would you sort of incorporate or implement Challenger into your, into your work? What are some resources? What are some steps? I know it's a big, hairy question. No, it's um, but yeah, if you were to start over again, you know, still having the knowledge you have today, but you had to start over again in sales as an SDR or something, uh, how would you incorporate Challenger into your, your path? Yeah. So if I hadn't read the book, I'd probably start with reading the book just because I think the book does a good job of contextualizing this in the, like in the larger story of what we sellers are struggling with. Like if anything, the book, I think for many people gives you a sense of relief that, okay, it's not that I'm a bad seller. It's just like the world of buying has just changed so much and it's so much harder. Right. So I'd say step one is read the book, figure out, does this align? Like, do you, do you, does it resonate with you in the sense that you feel passionate that you want to show up to customer conversations this way? 
Challenger is not for everybody. It's okay if it doesn't, right? But that would be my step one. Then step two is every month we actually do a 30 minute webinar and it's for sellers. It's not like theory or big strategy. It is like, you're a seller, you're getting ready. Like for example, tomorrow we're doing one on the group meeting. You have to facilitate a group meeting over a computer with a bunch of people who probably has a bunch of other stuff that they want to get done. Like, how do you take control of that experience, bring in those challenger skills and how do you actually execute it? The do's, the don'ts, all that stuff. In my mind, this is some of the best work we've done because it breaks away from just the theory of challenger and actually starts speaking to how do I do and execute these jobs differently? So that's the first Thursday of every month. They're free. Anyone can join them. They're on demand. That would be second. And then third is I would actually take like your next customer interaction. And Mm -hmm. I would say, I would ask myself a few questions. One would be, what is the customer's current state that I think I need to reframe? So what is the customer currently doing? Back to our conversation before, if they're doing it, something about it is good enough. What is that? Second, what assumption led that customer to do the thing that they're doing today? And three, what is the thing that has changed about that assumption that is either no longer true, no longer as true, that would force them to think differently about what they're currently doing? Now, notice this has nothing to do with me, my product, my solution, what I sell. It has everything to do with understanding the mindset of that customer and why they do the things they do. If nothing else, and you just start asking yourself those three questions, your mindset coming into that customer meeting will be far more oriented towards their business, their problems than your stuff. And I think that's a huge step in the right direction. Huge. That's really, really awesome advice. And I will, so is there a link to that Thursday night? um, Yeah, yeah. I will post that on the show notes for anyone out there who wants to, to participate. And then tell us some more ways that we can get in touch with you. I, you've got a podcast, uh, you, you know, what, yeah. How else can, can listeners find you to, to get more resources? Yeah, I love, I mean, LinkedIn, I just, I love LinkedIn. So always feel free to connect. Um, two would be the podcast, which you can listen to anywhere. It's called winning the challenger sale. Um, and then three would be, um, the webinars that we mentioned. I think what we're trying to do is just put out a lot of great content out there because we recognize some sellers want to sell this way. Their organizations just don't allow it. So if you identify with that and you say, look, I, I can't keep banging my head for more training inside my organization, come to the, <laughs> come to us, we'll give you stuff to help you at yeah. least make some progress on it. Awesome. Um, and now my final question, well, two more questions. <laughs> One is, are you a native of Illinois, Chicago area, or are you a transplant? I'm a transplant. I grew up in Pennsylvania when I, after I moved to DC for the CEV job. And then like most people that live in CE or DC, like after a couple of years, you're like, everybody's gone. What am I doing here? Goes. Yep. So it was either San Fran or Chicago. I looked at the cost of living in San Fran and Chicago <laughs> was, was an excellent pick. <laughs> That's so funny. I evaluated San Fran also and ended up in Austin. Uh, just for the same exact reason that I was driving in a taxi at the time. This is a long time ago. And the taxi driver was like, yeah, my rent's $6,000. And I was like, I'm going to move somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so uh, yeah. And and if I were to choose between the two, I love Chicago. And so my question was, I I know you're not a native, but I'll, I think everyone should take your opinion seriously on this best Chicago style pizza. What is it? 
Oh my gosh. I'm going to make a lot of people, actually, I probably won't. Cause I feel like most <laughs> Chicago people hate deep dish, but I would say anything, but deep dish, it's the worst. It's the worst. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's, yeah. It just, how, so yeah, it's just kind of a, a big fluffy pizza. So is there a good place to go in Chicago? That's not deep dish that you'd well, recommend? If you go to like a Luminati's they've got deep dish and they have thin crust. Thin because- crust. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but thin crust is the way to go. You eat a deep dish pizza, you're in a food coma for like eight hours. It's just not it, worth it. It's a lot of bread and sauce and cheese. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, man, Chicago is such a great city. We're hoping to get out there. My wife and I are trying to do a, this is really nerdy, but a John Hughes themed Christmas. Oh! <laughs> So we're going to try to get an Airbnb out in the Chicago burbs and pretend that we're in home alone or something. Uh, I can't believe I'm admitting this on the air, but Stop uh, yes. it. I love it. <laughs> so yeah, that's Chicago is such a great city. I'm, I'm glad you're there. That's really awesome. Any final words of wisdom to the sellers out there who are grinding day over day? Uh, any else, anything else you care to share before we wrap up? No, I would just say to anyone listening, like kudos to you, right? Like I think Jesse podcasts like yours who really focus on helping sellers approach their job differently, giving really good practical advice. I mean, when you think about like when I started selling 15 years ago, we didn't have that, right? And I just, I love any seller who is out there recognizing gaps and saying, I'm going to go out there and be the very best I can be by learning through others. So just kudos to you, Jesse, for putting on such a great platform. And this was a really fun experience. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing uh, some more insight into the challenger mindset. And uh, yeah, we should have you come back on again soon. I'd love that. And you let me know when you come to Chicago, I'll give you my whole list of restaurant recommendations. That sounds awesome. Will do. (laughs) 